Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a Shabbat teaching with TBA rabbinic intern Rachel Cohn. I chose to look at something not from the the Parsha. I actually wanted to look a little bit at the what will be the Haftorah reading for next week when we have Shabbat Chazon, which is the Shabbat before Tisha B'Av. So we're in this this kind of, you know, gearing up towards Tisha B'Av and Shabbat Chazon, which is next week. But, you know, in Mincha, we're always kind of looking forward to the next Shabbat. So there is Shabbat Chazon, which is the Shabbat before Tisha B'Av. And then a few of the days after that, in this case, we have Tisha B'Av. And then after that, we will eventually have Shabbat Nachamu, which is the Shabbat of comfort. So just to kind of name name the cycle of different sad and then happier things that are coming in the in the Jewish calendar. Um, but <clears throat> I find each of the readings that happen around this cycle very, very intriguing. So I wanted to take this opportunity to look at um, what will be the Haftorah portion for next week together. I included the, the full text of the Haftorah portion so that you can see the context for where this um, comes up, since I know sometimes people are are reading from um, like a chumash that may or may not have the the prophets' readings attached to it as well. So um, we we I think for the sake of time, since we don't have a ton of time to learn together, we won't read through all of it. But you have it just so you can see the context from this passage in Isaiah. Um, just. So you understand why I broke it up the way I did on the sheet. If you have the source sheet, um, I put the first chunk of text, Isaiah chapter one, verses one through 15. This That's kind of God's big rebuke of the Jewish people, kind of explaining from God's perspective, voiced through Isaiah um, about why the temple um, is, is being destroyed, kind of naming the different sins that the the Israelites have have committed, the Jewish people have committed, um, and listing them in kind of graphic detail. Then the second, the second piece that I have on the sheet, or if you're listening or following along, Isaiah chapter one, verses 16 to 27. Um, that's where, again, God voiced through Isaiah is giving some um, indication of the future hope or comfort or ways that you can get out of this mess that um, that has been created from the idolatry and lack of faithfulness to God and all, all kinds. There's all kinds of interesting metaphors in this this text. Um, but what I want to kind of focus on today is, at least for starters, and then the conversation will will go wherever is interesting to you all. Um, the rabbinic sources are always in this interesting predicament when, when I think when they're talking about the temple where they have to be very respectful to the institution of the temple that, that was and maintain the at least theoretical hope that the temple could be rebuilt. And at the same time, they have to be defending rabbinic Judaism as a great thing that happened. Even it came from, the horrible destruction of the temple. And yet we emerged with rabbinic Judaism and all of these rabbinic commentators, they're kind of having to defend their own institution. I think all, like all the time, that's kind of part of the subtext of what they're doing is to say, you know, this, this, this thing we have called rabbinic Judaism is, is great and you should pay attention to it and we should carry forward. So what we're going to read tonight are some commentaries that I think are grappling with 
when you think about the temple being destroyed, the institution of idol worship, obviously, at least for now, who knows, can always come back, at least for now, you know, got phased out. And the and it was replaced with the institution of what has become standard prayer. So I think what what we're looking at is the commentators having to, like I said, kind of both be sad that the the temple didn't work out and and also be making a case for what it was replaced with in this case prayer being important and and good for the Jewish people um okay so I think I think we'll kind of see that that tension emerging so the piece of this again like I said the the chunks that I put on the sheet I would roughly describe as God's rebuke and then God's kind of instructions for how you can get back on the right track where I would like us to um, have a couple of verses I'm going to read in detail will be um, Isaiah chapter one, verse 11, and then verse 15, because this is what the, the commentators interpret in an interesting way about um, prayer. So again, God is, God is there saying you, you've become, you know, you're, you're really like off, off the track morally. And then says, what need have I for all of your sacrifices? Says God. I am, I am sated. I am, you know, I'm satiated. I'm satisfied with burnt offerings of rams, etc. I have no delight in lambs and he goats, kind of the, you know, there's many different kind of animals named for sacrifices. Um, they have become a burden to me, it even says later on. I cannot endure them. So all of these commandments, there, you know, there's extensive details in many parts of of the Torah about how to offer these sacrifices. You would think obviously God really wants them, but here God is saying, no, 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 I don't, I don't have, you know, I don't want them. It's become a burden to me because kind of like you're not backing it up with doing anything moral. Um, And then verse 15 says, and when you lift up your hands, which is a sign of, of prayer, I will turn my eyes away from you. Though you pray at length, I will not listen. Your hands are stained with crime. So this is this is part of God saying, you know, like you've committed these awful sins. It's almost, you know, it's like don't don't even bother offering these sacrifice because like, I can tell you don't like I don't you don't really mean it or or you've done so many other sinful things that you know I don't even want your I don't even want your sacrifices anymore. So at first glance. You know, the verse 15 does speak about prayer and verse 11 does speak about sacrifices. If you just read or heard these two verses, um, like what would you, before we read the commentaries, what do you think the message about prayer or sacrifices would be? Or sorry, let me back up for a second. What do you, like, I'll, I'll, I'll simplify the question. What do you think the message about um, sacrifices is? from just that verse 11. Joanna? Um, that sacrifice is not an end, but really only the beginning of a process. Like the, mm-hmm. the, the concept of bringing a sacrifice is in some way, shape, or form supposed to lead to some kind of action. Mm-hmm. So it's not necessarily... That it's not it's not bad. It's just incomplete. If that's the only thing that you're that you're doing, okay, um, great. Any any other thoughts? I think that's a nice nice succinct way to to put it. Any other things people would like to add? Larry? Sure. 
it's a common theme um, in in the prophets. We read we read it. Those of us who read the rabbinic text every morning, there's a quote from Yerushalmi Brachot. Rabbi Shmuel Bar Nachmani said, "The Holy One said to David, Solomon, your son is building the temple. Is this not for the purpose of offering sacrifices there?" The justice and righteousness of your actions are more precious to me than sacrifices. And how do we know this? And then there's a quote from Mishle from Proverbs. To do what is right and just is more desirable to Adonai than sacrifice. So the, the, the theme clearly is that sacrifices are not sufficient and perhaps they're not even necessary. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's a great that's a great bridge to how the rabbis take it, because I think in its in its initial biblical context is absolutely saying it's not um, it's not sufficient. And then I think the rabbis can can easily make the jump from there to also say it's not it's not even necessary because again they've ended up in a situation where the, there aren't sacrifices so so they I think are often looking for ways to read the text to say you know it was a great thing that happened it certainly wasn't sufficient exactly like you said maybe you know maybe isn't even necessary so let's see what we should do now um, instead. So if if you have the source sheet, I put on a quote from a discussion in the Talmud in um, Brachot, chapter 32b. And, you know, Brachot is a section in the Talmud where there's a lot of discussion about, about prayer and both the specifics of it, but also kind of the larger vision and intentions that, that go into it. So one passage that, that refers to this section in Isaiah says, uh, Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Elazar said, prayer is greater than sacrifices, as it is stated. To what purpose is, are the, you know, all of your sacrifices to me? The first verse that I pointed out. And then later, the other verse that I read, it's written. And when you spread your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you increase your prayer, I will not hear your hands are full of blood. So implied in Rabbi Elazar's comment is you know, he's that he he's reading this as saying prayer is greater than sacrifices. I think that's not an obvious read of it. So there's there's different commentators that explain how he got there. I thought this <clears throat> the one that I chose from from Abra- Abraham Cohen, one of one of the more recent commentators um, says, since the text means that having rejected their sacrifice, God will even reject their supplications. It follows that prayer is of higher importance than the offering. So one way to interpret what Rabbi Elazar is saying is that first it says, you know, God rejected the sacrifices. Okay. But then because later it it mentions God will also reject the prayer, this reading of it says that means that, you know, like that prayer was the next, the next level up and that God is saying, even then I'll, you know, even then I'll reject your prayer. So rabbinically speaking, they take that combination to say um, that prayer is greater than sacrifices. Um, so I'll just pause here to say, you know, do you agree with that reading of the text? Like I, I can, I can see how somebody could, could jump to that conclusion. I personally don't really see, don't see that in at least the simple reading of the text. I, you know, I'm kind of with, with Joanna thinking, um, that it's that like it's saying prayer is insufficient. So I'm just I'm just curious to get your thoughts about you know this Rabbi Elazar comment. Prayer is greater than sacrifices. You can both say like your personal commentary about that if you agree or disagree, or say you know like if you think that's a fair conclusion to jump to from the text that we read. 
I think it's an evolving conclusion. I don't know that it's necessarily the original conclusion that one would jump to, but it's how I look at a lot of Torah, right? Like, because when we read about sacrifices in Torah, or when we read about, for example, even let's say like the laws of slavery in Torah, and then we ask ourselves as 21st century Jews, of what relevance is that to us today? Because like the laws of slavery, that's not a model for me of like how I think we should live today. I don't think we should have slaves at all. So what I try to do in my head is put it in the time and place and context of the time in which it evolved, right? So in the time of sacrifices, when we look at all the other nations and how they were doing sacrifices, what's the greater lesson that Judaism was trying to teach us about how we offer sacrifices in contrast? And then what can we draw from that and apply today? And similar, like with laws like slavery, and there's probably tons of other examples, right? In a world where slavery was so prevalent, what distinction was Judaism trying to create? So I think we can ask ourselves those questions. And then as time evolves, as the rabbis did in their own time, and then certainly as, you know, we get up to our own times in the 21st century, And I think particularly relevant to conservative Judaism, this is what we do all the time. It's sort of this evolving analysis of how do we reinterpret for our own day and our own time. Mm -hmm. Great. Thank you, Joanna. Larry? Sorry about that. Um, I'm going to go in a slightly different direction in terms of a hierarchy um, of sacrifice being a, a, a form of ritual which is almost unspeakable in our day because it seems to have no meaning that we can really understand. And so we move to another form of ritual, which is prayer or other mm-hmm. rituals. Um, and then we move then to say, well, we want to study Torah or to learn Torah. And there's lots of, um, there, there, there are a lot of um, um, sources that say that, that Torah is greater or equal to them, to them all. But in the end, I think what we're really trying to do is to evoke um, uh, good deeds or good actions and good behavior, which maybe cannot be disconnected from the ritual of prayer or the ritual of Torah study. And I'm going to make a huge leap here. As I was reading a, 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 a column by John McWhorter in The Atlantic, some of you may know him or follow him, talking about uh, some of the controversy about words today, which I won't go into right now, but the debate about uh, critical race theory and things you can say and things you can't say. But he concluded his article by saying, in the end, working to change conditions is much more important than obsessively curating the words and expressions we use to describe them. And for me, um, I think that's what Isaiah is saying here. I think that's what uh, I think it's Micah is saying and Hosea is saying um, that um, and, and the passages in the Talmud as well. Um, don't obsess so much about the specific ritual, although I think that we, we, some of us do, but rather on the deeds that it's basically moving you to, uh, to, to do. So, I mean, so that sounds like what a, part of what I hear and what you're saying is there's different tools that have been used at different points. They should all kind of be nudging us towards, you know, living a life of good deeds and, um, you know, potentially like different contexts have led to different ones rising to the the top of the the toolbox. But that's you know they're all like should ideally be getting us into the same 
um, destination. <clears throat> or I don't know, you can <laughs> you can clarify if that wasn't if that wasn't it. But <laughs> no, that, that that that's I'll only I'll only add for me personally, and I for for another time for those who want to discuss it, the business about necessary and sufficient is. Um, I would certainly argue that ritual is not sufficient under any circumstances. Whether it's necessary is, to some extent, um, debatable or arguable. Right. Really, really interesting. Um, <clears throat> so let's. There, I want to add a layer from um, a commentary called Penine Halacha, which is a modern halachic commentary speaking about. Um, again, a discussion of prayer, but referring back to um, the same conversation about Isaiah and, and what it means. So he makes kind of his own argument or vision for how he sees prayer, you know, ideally functioning for us. So he says, moreover, during the time of the first temple, many people mistakenly thought that by offering sacrifices, their sins would be forgiven and they would merit Hashem's blessing, even if they did not purify their hearts and correct their transgressions. How he knows exactly the intentions of people living at that time is is uh, sounds like a, a leap to me, but that's uh, <laughs> that's it, that's his take on it. Um, the truth is that faith in Hashem, purification of the heart, and correcting one's actions are of principal importance, as it says, quoting Deuteronomy, "What does Hashem want of you? Only that you remain in awe of Hashem, your God, so that you will follow all His paths and love Him, serving Hashem, your God, with all your heart and with all your soul." The prophets severely condemned those who believed that the essence was to bring sacrifices without possessing and demonstrating true devotion to Hashem. As it is written, this passage in Isaiah, what do I need of all your sacrifices, etc. Um, so just jumping to the end of the quote, since we've read that passage already. Um, By instituting the prayers, Anshe Knesset Hagadola, so those, those were the um, early rabbis who helped fix a lot of the prayer rituals in the aftermath of the destruction of the temple. Um, so these early leaders on Sheikh Knesset Hagadola restored the proper order to serving Hashem. So interestingly, he like he's inserting definitely a judgment that that after the destruction of the temple, something was finally kind of set right. Um, they restored the proper order, reminding us that faith, intent and devotion are the basis of our lives and they are expressed most appropriately via prayer. Just as Rabbi Elazar said, prayer is greater than sacrifices. With that in mind, we pray that we should be worthy of expressing our devotion to Hashem completely, both in prayer and in sacrifices. So I think it's interesting that at the end, he throws in that, you know, that little twist of, you know, acknowledging that that sacrifices can be a component of it. I think, again, because they need to maintain the theoretical option that the temple can be rebuilt and sacrifices could return. Um but, you know, overall, his argument seems to be stating pretty clearly that um, that actually setting the fixed prayer services was was something that was really missing in the time of um, in the time of the temple. So I'm just curious to kind of continue the discussion. If you you know, if you're thinking about the options for ritual life in the temple, how you know prayer evolved afterwards um like do you agree with his comment that the institution of fixed prayer really um really like fixed something for the jewish people that wasn't there before 
I think what what one of the things that the institution of prayer has done for the Jewish people is, I mean, we know now from architectural evidence that there were sacrifices that were offered outside of the temple, but there seemed to have been a, a very much temple focus on that's where you offer your sacrifices, right? So you had to get to the temple to offer sacrifices, but prayer is something that can happen anywhere. And both, first of all, communally in our communal institutions, in our synagogues, in our Beit Midrash, in our schools, you know, in, but also even in your own home or wherever you happen to find yourself at the moment. So in that way, I think it becomes much more of like, an equalizer among all, plus the fact that you don't need the assistance of a Kohen and a, and a Levite to do it, mm-hmm. right? So it becomes much more of an equal playing field and equal access in so many ways than um, offering a sacrifice. <clears throat> right. It's definitely, there's definitely a, a democratizing aspect to it. Um, uh, Earth? You know, it was an agricultural society and people were working. They weren't praying. They weren't going to the temple. They were in the fields trying to survive. Right. So I think what it was, was it was a religion um, that basically just was more symbolic than actual in terms of uh, people's practice. I don't know. I'm just speculating. So take everything I say with a big grain of salt. But I agree with Johanna. What the context was, and again, I, I really don't know about, a lot about ancient life, was that people were sacrificing kids, you know. I mean, so putting an animal and basically doing it as a barbecue, which we still do today, those meat eaters among us, um, is, was a big improvement. So I agree with the context of, of what was done then compared to what was done now. Everybody else was sacrificing the kids, all kinds of barbaric practices that unfortunately, are some are still prevalent in some places in the world. So that's my two, my two pearls of uh, <laughs> speculation. Let's go. Two cents on that one. Um, <clears throat> I mean, I mean, yes. Like the, I think part of the transition to rabbinic Judaism also involves it. It Judaism becoming accessible both for agricultural societies because many of the people in you know, like even in exile, they were still working fields and stuff like tons of stuff in the Talmud discusses specific farming practices. Um, but also it, it became accessible as, you know, society became less agriculturally based. So I think that, that you're also kind of pointing out another, another transition that was, that was happening as there was this prayer revolution was like also changes in, in societal structure. And, you know, also they, a lot of people were moving physically. So yes, Larry. So I think I'm, I think I'm going to take issue with jo- Joanna um, um, and with the Benine uh, Halacha. Is I don't think the transition is from sacrifices to prayer. I think prayer is simply the substitute for 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 for, for the sacrifices, mm-hmm. and and it's really simply another form of ritual practice. Mm-hmm. Isaiah is pretty clear. He's rejecting. The, he's saying God is rejecting these ritual practices, and I think those parts of the Talmud which which focus on on uh, good deeds and 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 following the mitzvot themselves, as opposed to simply learning about them or praying about them, is what God is asking. Um, or the the line from Micah: "What does the Lord ask of you? 
um, to be righteous and do good deeds. I forget the exact, the exact Love, quote. Love, justice, do mercy. Yeah. Right. Right. And so I, 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 I think it's a false transition to, to talk about going from sacrifices to prayer. Um, prayers are much better than sacrifices. Um, I don't reject prayers. As you know, I, I pray, you know, I, I am a regular. <laughs> yeah. But I, as I said, I think the question is, we even have to ask ourselves in, in, attending, in, in attending to our own prayers, is that really what God is asking us to do? Or is that simply a means to an end to motivate us to do other things? And let me just put a shameless plug for Haftarah Plathora, which is every week uh, linked on the uh, Shul Shabbat uh, site. And next week we will talk about this Haftarah. And I don't know if it's in the archives, but we talked about it last, last year uh, already uh, as well. It's a, it's a very interesting Haftarah for a lot of reasons, not least of which is we recite some of the verses to the uh, uh, melody of Echa. Hope I, I hope I didn't uh, take anyone's uh, two cents early. <laughs> no, not, um, no, not at all. Maybe I'll even use some of what you said here to uh, in the when Rick and I record uh, uh, later this week. Sure, sure, sounds good. Um, but I, I mean, I think what you're saying is getting to is getting to like exactly the point is that we can run into the same trap of thinking if you think, oh, we have this new ritual technology, that's the new solution. And you can still use that instead of, you know, like being a, being a good person. You can come, you can, you can pray. And then the second you leave the shul, you know, do the same things that, that God's commenting about being a problematic where like, you know, don't, don't just give me your sacrifices, you know, like show me how you're going to be a mensch. You can say the same thing of prayer. Don't just show up, you know, it's great to show up to prayer, but don't just do that. You still, you know, you got to be a mensch. So I think, I think, um, Larry, you're, you're pointing out, um, I think the way that is painted in the Panine Halakha passage is like, oh, it's all good now. We have prayer. That's, that's the way, you know, if you're praying well, then for sure your heart's in the right place. And I think that's, that's too, too simple, uh, an understanding of it. Okay, great. Uh, Tybel? Um, because Larry did a shameless plug. It's actually a question for Larry. Yep. You? Yeah. Um, So I realize it may change every week. But what's your favorite Haftorah? Oh, my goodness. Uh, I'll tell you next week. You come back next week. Great. Um, Larry will have time to think about it. I I try. It's just, though, I I don't know how long you've been doing it, but I would think for some people, the favorite is the one you just really thought about and did something. But You mean Micah? Uh, yeah, the, 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 I forget which No, no, no. Well, Micah, Micah, of course, greatest hits, if I can use that expression. But um, no, sometimes it's what you've taught most recently for some people. I don't know. I was just curious. Uh, I'll, take time. I'll only say doing this with, with Rick over now a, a full year, uh, for me, has just deepened the appreciation for Nevi'im in general, for the Haftarot, which we, we don't spend a lot of time on. I, this morning in shul, um, which, by the way, was a wonderful service for those who were there, um, Joel, Joel Grossman read the, read the Haftarah, which is the second Haftarah admonition, and it's from Jeremiah. And it's where Jeremiah really lets the people have it, unlike last week. But there are two, two alternative endings. And one ending is for Ashkenazim, which is verse 4 of chapter 3, I think, which is taken completely out of context because they want to end on a positive note. But the Sephardim take the first two verses of chapter four of Jeremiah, which basically talks about 
tshuva and, and things being positive because of tshuva. So there's an example of where you study the, the Haftarot and you just, you're, you're enriched by finding out, oh, you don't just say, oh, the Ashkenazim do this, the Sfarim do this. You, you go into, into detail into why did they do that? And what were they trying to accomplish? And you can even make judgments. And Joel chose to read the Sephardi ending and not the Ashkenazi ending. And I thought that was fantastic. Very interesting. Well, I'll, well, I'll have to go to Larry's class now. Um, so just to, to close our discussion for tonight, and we can, you know, pick, pick back up when, <laughs> when Larry takes, uh, takes another crack at it. Um, I think, as we've kind of already been getting to in our conversation, like the, the point of, of any of this, of, of showing up to prayer, of participating in any of these parts of Jewish life, is to be continually asking ourselves, what, what is it leading me to? Is, what is the purpose of this? ritual, this, this element of spirituality that I'm engaging in? Am I doing just this? Or is it part of something that is leading me towards goodness towards more, you know, bringing more justice into the world, and to almost be looking at it from the, you know, the zoomed out bird's eye view, God's eye view, however you want to think about it saying, you know, what, like, what is this leading me to do? Um, So so, you know, I'll encourage you, whether for you, you're thinking primarily about prayer as we, you know, jump into these weeks thinking about Tisha B'Av and the significance of the temple, <clears throat> we're part of, an, you know, an evolving history of Jewish life. What, you know, what is it that you're doing today that really speaks to you and you think is, is part of, of fixing some of these problems that, that are, not, are not new and yet are still part of our world? Like, what is it about Jewish life that, that is leading you? to um to do bring more goodness into the world um and and not just stop at the 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 prayers the the words the actions like sacrifices um so i hope that i hope that that's an that's an ongoing question in your jewish life and i think particularly in this time of year it's it's um you know interesting to be thinking about as as we're marking the this big transition in jewish history that is still supposed to matter to us today. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.